Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. Welcome back to the Uncomfortable Truth. My guest today is Stephen Gaffney, who I've known for somewhere over a decade. Uh, Stephen has a, a very healthy practice in Washington, D.C., uh, and he specializes in something that a lot of people do, which is, but in a different way, which is teams and team effectiveness. But he also specializes in something that very few people do, which is honesty. And one of the great things I heard him say once was, it's not what you say, it's what you don't say, which stuck with me. Just a brilliant insight. So, Stephen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with honesty. Uh, yeah. I, my first question is, you know, you've been doing this a long time. Is honesty different today from when you first started dealing with it? Actually, I don't think so. I just think people are more of, uh, they realize more things now. Or, or what I mean by that is there's more transparency, more availability. But I still think people lie in all these issues because they get afraid, right? You talk about getting the unsaid said. And I don't believe that most people are unethical. They're just afraid. And if there is one thing that has changed, I think, over the time period of the past 10, 20 years, it's that now we live in a world in which people are presumed guilty until innocent. Well, this and if is you think TSA. about it, pardon me? It's, it's TSA at the airport. You're guilty yeah. until you prove <laughs> But just think about it. When something comes out in the news, oh, that person's guilty or, or that company's guilty, and then they have to justify that they're innocent. Instead of presuming that people are innocent and companies are innocent until proven guilty, which is what our country is founded on. And I think that what the result of that is that people get afraid to say anything because they're afraid how it's going to come out. So I do think that's been an issue that's kind of getting worse, not better. But the fundamental mechanics of why people lie and just being afraid is always been, always been there. You know, that's a fabulous point. I can't think of who said this or I give them credit, but they were charged with something. The media played it up, but then they were completely exonerated. And the person says, yeah, but how do I get my reputation back? Oh, wow. Interesting that's point, awesome. you know? So uh, do you think that, um, do you think, you said people are afraid. Is, is it an ego fragility? Is it that they're afraid that they might say something inappropriate? I mean, what causes that fear in them? Well, I think it's fear of uh, retribution, fear it's going to go on the list, right? And people will be unforgiving, fear it's going to hurt their career, fear it's going to hurt their image. I just think it's fundamentally fear. And why that's so important is I think the number one trait for all great leaders, it's not visionary, it's not ability to run operations, not profitability. It's the ability to make people feel safe. And I think it, when people feel safe, they'll speak up because it takes a lot more psychological energy to keep something inside than to let it out. So as a CEO, as an executive if, and manager and leader, just every day, folks, if we make people feel safe, they'll open up. And that deals with something else I also think. I'm not a big fan of this whole terminology, psychological safety. I think it's emotional safety because people can think it's safe, but they need to feel that it's safe. And we can talk about why that often doesn't happen, but fundamentally, it's about making people feel safe. Do you think that applies uh, to, to politicians? In other words, people's belief that the politicians will keep them safe uh, is what drives them to vote? That's a good question. Never really thought about it that way. What do you think, actually? That's a good point. Well, my, my feeling is that 
you know, like I, I'm here in Rhode Island, right? The next state to Massachusetts and us and we in Rhode Island generally vote Democratic, no matter what. You know, there are some exceptions and so forth. But I was thinking about why that would be. And I, I think it's largely because there's a sort of an historical memory here that the Democrats keep people safe. They provide jobs or they provide a safety net or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and they just go right down that line on the voting machine. But when you said that about executives and leaders, yeah, it just occurred to me that it's probably the same with politicians. Well, here's what I say about the leaders, which I think is um, to justify the point why it's so important. And I think the most important trait is to make people feel safe, because consider the opposite. If I'm a CEO or an executive and I don't make people feel safe, I have to make sure that every decision is the right one, because if I screw up, nobody's going to tell me. But if I'm lousy at being a visionary and I create um, that emotional safety, people say, hey, I have no under- I don't understand where the company is going, and then I can correct it. If I make a mistake operationally, and um, or I could head down that path, and I make people feel safe, they'll push back. And so I think that if you make people feel safe, you get that feedback, and you can course correct very easily. If you make people feel fearful, then that's a different story. And it's very easy to do that when people say, like, for example, I, I watch uh, meetings will happen or like these town hall meetings, any questions? And people go in their head, I have a question, but no way am I asking for it because last time it didn't go so well. <laughs> so it's so easy to create that fear, but the idea is to make people feel safe. Now you've worked in both um, government agencies and defense contractors and private business. Do you find there are differences in how honest people are naturally apt to be in the public sector versus the private sector? Actually, I I have not noticed any differences. A lot of times somebody will say, oh, is it different in government versus different in um, the corporate world? And I do think there's different pressures, but fundamentally people get afraid of, uh, about speaking the truth. I see that in the government sector. I see that in the military and it's the military is the number one military in the world. I just see this with all the organizations I deal with it's because fundamentally, it's it it's scary to sometimes speak the truth. And sometimes it has nothing to do with the organization. It's just because of people's past experiences. I mean, I think you can think of situations, I know I can, where somebody says, oh, I love honesty. Please, you know, tell me anything. And then you give them honest feedback and they flip out. <laughs> yeah, right. And the next time you go, oh, I'm not going there. In fact, I think we train and condition people to speak the truth or to or or not. So I I, I think that, and I've seen this happen in the government world and also in the corporate world. It's fundamentally, it's, and I know I keep saying the word fundamentally, but it's such a basis to make people feel safe and operate safely because it's a human dynamic to be scared to speak the truth. You know, Maria and I were just talking the other day. I had a large pharmaceutical client and a guy in there left. He was recruited to go to another large pharmaceutical firm. So he was no longer my client, but he called me maybe a year later, and he said, Alan, I need your advice. I have evidence, absolute evidence, documented evidence, that this company is putting out drugs that haven't been tested properly and that they have lied to the Food and Drug Commission. He said, what should I do? I said, well, you you got to save lives. You got to blow the whistle here. I said, get yourself an attorney. And then there there are protocols for informing about this. Well, you know, there are whistleblower laws. And so he blew the whistle. And uh, he was accurate, and the company was fined and stopped, and people were fired. And he got something like, I don't know, $30 million as his whistleblower reward. It's a percentage of something. And it, it occurred to me then and now that he did a really good deed, and I was happy to give him the advice. But the government feels they have to pay people 
or they won't come forth honestly and say, we found cheating. We found dangers to public health. Yeah, I think that's a risky uh, move, right? When we pay people for things, because then it brings in ulterior motives. Right. You know, it reminds me, though, in the opposite of there's a book uh, years ago written called Ideas Are Free. And the fundamental headline idea was the most the best way to encourage people to share things is is to reward them. But I don't mean it has to be reward them in the in the nature of money. It's just really using their ideas, using their feedback. So I, I so it's hard to comment on the whistleblower aspect, but what I do think that's appropriate for all of us is that when we want people to share ideas, do we show that we'll use ideas? Like Alan, I mean, I've, my whole life has changed as a result of you. And and I've, I've, I've watched you in sessions where people will ask you for advice <laughs> and then they don't listen to it. And I just think that's so crazy, right? And so eventually when somebody asks us for advice and we don't do anything with it, we just say, forget it. But if they use our advice, we're more likely to share it. Well, the same dynamics just as a whole and, and, the, and with other people. And so I just think that there's a way to reward people, but essentially it's to use what they're sharing or at least forms of what they're sharing. Now, tell me this, uh, as an expert in honesty and given all you've observed empirically and so forth, are you ever self-conscious about it? Do you ask yourself, hey, am I living up to my own rules here? Or was this was this a white lie or was that like a card? <laughs> that's so that's a great question. Absolutely. And people say, you're an honesty expert. Do you ever lie? Yeah, absolutely. I lie. But it's very rare. And there are certain exceptions. Like I remember I, uh, I was talking on a call, you know, about when to lie and why. And you made such a great point about like, of course, there are times like if I remember correctly, it's like, you know, your kids screws up in a play you're not going to say what are you doing you know how can you mess this up you're going to ruin their confidence right so you know it's just so interesting because we all battle with these things but i would i'd venture to say i need to be a great example of it as a whole and i do challenge myself you know what's it going to take because i teach from the passion of belief and that it's worked and that people can look at my life and say, it's not perfect, but am I a good example of this? So I don't subscribe to this. What, that's, what's this whole thing where you teach what you need to learn and all that? Those are just excuses. The reality is, if we're going to teach this, we need to live and breathe that. And you're an excellent example of that. You live and breathe what you teach. And I'd like to say that I do the same. And that's the power of the way I can speak and persuade people. Well, you're the expert here in honesty, but I'll tell you one thing where I find that I can justify lying, and that's when a woman asks me, do I look heavy in this outfit? <laughs> I mean, you don't have many choices there. I mean, really. Uh, so It's really tough. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean tough per se in that example, but, but I mean, it's tough when people ask a question and then we have things going on in our head. I mean, let's face it, you work for somebody or you're working with somebody and they ask you something and you're like, they're probably going to get defensive. Is it worth my time to go there? We all have ideas and feedback, and sometimes we got to decide, is it worth our time to go there? But it does remind me of something. So what I did a television interview years ago, and this lady did say, so you're an expert in this, you know, do, uh, do I look fat in this dress? And I'm like, there's... It, it's like, where do you get to do with an example like that? You know, and it's just so interesting. So sometimes people ask questions to set other people up, and sometimes they really want to know, but the, but then we have to calculate, is it worth going there? I mean, as a whole, just universally. So she asked you that on camera. It did. She did. Better you than me. Uh, so let me switch gears here. Uh, you know, um, 
people have been writing about teams since, you know, a couple of people got together and, and carved a wheel, I guess. Uh, and you've been dealing with teams for a long time, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. Uh, in your opinion, uh, because of remote work and hybrid work and everything else, have has the nature of teamwork changed in the last couple of years? The answer is no. So I here's what has ha- happened is we've now, at least uh, for most of my clients, they're reverting back to in-person and somewhat hybrid. But I was just on the phone this morning with a client and we were just discussing how everything is now moving back towards in-person to, to a great extent, not not the way it was originally, but we're moving in that direction. So, and, and the content that I'm teaching didn't change. So I teach the same kind of basis, critical um, uh, 12 essential elements um, before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and then after the pandemic. And it still, and it still works and has worked. And so how we might apply it would be different slightly, but the whole basis of it is, the, is there. You used- so I can address that more. Well, you used to, uh, before the pandemic, you would solely address teams in person, I think, right? Absolutely. You, so, Pretty much, yeah. But but now you probably do both. Some's in person and some is by Zoom, I would think. Yeah, I, meetings are, and uh, of course, podcasts and things like this. But really, most of my work now is back to in person because what's happened is when people get together in person, there's just some energy, different focus, and things you can do in person. A great example of this is when the meeting's over. If you're there, you're going to talk in the hallway. You might have side conversations, but there's none of that in, you know, in, in the course of doing it virtually. This may sound like to people I'm against doing things virtually. I'm not. It just depends on certain things. But what I am saying is there's a strong movement to going back to work and having in-person meetings to a great extent. There was an article just this past weekend in the Times that uh, there's more and more of a trend by uh, managers and, and leaders and owners to get people into the office exactly for the reasons you just cited. And I think one of the troubles that leaders are having today is trying to manage teams that aren't physically present. I think it's absolutely yeah. It's, it's similar to what was happening in COVID because you got to, to me, you have to simulate to the best that you can these side conversations. So um, there's 12 essential elements of a consistently high achieving team. And on purpose, I say that versus high performing, which we can get there. But one of those essential elements is having a consistent communication business rhythm, some consistency of dependability when we're going to communicate. Well, what I, what I noticed that happened during COVID and then even subsequently afterwards, is a lot of ineffective teams don't have that consistent communication business rhythm. And so it's, well, when are we going to talk next? And how am I going to reach that person? And if they're all working virtually or to a great extent working virtually, it's hard to track people down. I'm not saying that you have to bring everybody back to work per se. What I am saying, no matter whether it's virtual, hybrid, or in person, it's critical to have that consistent communication business rhythm. You just alluded to a high performance team. You said, which is somewhat different. So let me hit that softball. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm against the terminology high performing teams. I think it's old hat and it's not really where it is. I think what's happened, what I advocate is a terminology of consistently high achieving teams. So I want to, I can speak about the difference. The word performing can be confused with hard work. And it's really about achieving. So I've switched that out. And then it often misses the idea of doing it consistently. And whenever I speak about that difference, whenever I do, everybody goes, 
oh my gosh, it's so true. Because leaders and people feel challenged when they push people and say, well, what do you want me to do? I'm working hard. And you're like, well, that's not really the problem. The problem is whether achieving and producing results and whether it's the government or corporate world, we are paid to produce results. I mean, another great thing I've learned about you uh, from you is about achievement, clients' objectives, and making sure that has happened and that we are essentially hired hands. We need to achieve those objectives. And I think that doesn't change. And so no matter what, what kind of field we're in, it's about achievement. So that's why I say achievement versus performing. And then I put in the idea of making sure that it's consistently high achieving teams. Yeah, I've, I've preached for a long time that leaders are not paid to take action. They're paid to get results. Yes. You know, sometimes you don't have to take action, and, but you have to be smart enough to know that. So uh, I've talked for a long time about the fact that um, there's a difference between a team and a committee. Uh, you know, teams ideally should win or lose together, so to speak. But committees are, are composed of people who will help each other if, if it makes sense to them, but they, all, they have their own self-interest in mind first. Uh, I can get a high bonus while you don't, or vice versa. So how do you feel about that? You know, in Congress, they're called congressional committees, not teams. Uh, so it, is there such a difference or am I, uh, am I sort of overreacting there? I think you're spot on. In fact, I would venture to say, and I do say this at work um, uh, in the in the in the uh, work I do, is that I believe that most teams are really committees, and so it just is. That's the way it is, right? So, um, I think there's other things to consider with a team, but you bring a, a really excellent point. Is because people don't want to say what the truth is. We are acting like a committee. I'll give you an example. So, I was doing work with this uh, client, and we had to do this pre work. And in the pre work analysis, it came out that people said. We don't feel like we should be a team. We want the leader, my client, to leave us alone so we can get the job done. And so I called him. I said, you got a bigger problem. You're trying to build a team. They don't even think they should be a team. <laughs> and, and he was first really upset, but then he realized he had to create a business case why we should operate that way. I mean, how many times have people attended a meeting and walked down and thought that was a waste of time yeah. or the real meeting goes on outside the meeting rather than in the meeting. And it goes back to the whole getting the unsaid said. So you're spot on. It's like most of the time it's really committees and not teams and something else to consider. When we talk about about teams and all of what we're, we're discussing here, a team is two or more people. So we have, uh, you know, whoever we work with, whoever's in our life, even at home, family, all kinds of situations, they're all about teams. So this isn't like the big executive team or the project team. It's any relationship we have with anybody is a team. And so these things are considered are important with a relationship. Are we working together as one? Or are we working in opposition? And it's my agenda versus your agenda. These are things to consider because I have a lot of people who take my content and they change their life as a result of it, their personal life, because it's the same basic principles. You know, uh, this occurred before I met you or knew of your work, but I, when I was working with Hewlett Packard for a long time, when I first began, I'd go to a team meeting and it, it, the, the meeting would take, I don't know, 20 minutes and everybody was in agreement and they all left. So after three or four of these, I said, how does this, there's never disagreement. How can this be? What's going on? And they said to me, well, you're only in the last meeting. I said, what do you mean last meeting? They said, we have a series of meetings before this to iron out disagreements. So when we finally have the real meeting, we've already, I said, okay, I want to go to the first meeting. And sure enough, they had something called putting the dead rat on the table where they, because it was smelling up the room. And they go, so, so they spent five times longer than they had to because they couldn't be honest with each other in the, in the meeting where there was somebody to make a decision. So it's interesting that you bring that up. 
Now, as you look to the future, can I say something on that, Alan? Because you bring up something which is uh, to show how often t uh, meetings are just such a waste of time. I'll say to people, how often have you attended a meeting in which the subject of the meeting is about somebody else who's not in the meeting? And you're saying, why don't we just go ask that person? And, and people just laugh because they realize it's so true. So many meetings are, it's just like the pre-meeting. Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you. That's okay. But it just thought occurred to me. I asked a CEO once why he went to so many meetings because he was complaining about his time. He said, because my name's on the agenda. My name's on the distribution list. I said, they don't want to insult you by leaving it off. It doesn't mean you have to go, you know? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So, you know, look at the future for me here. You're in a really good position to take a look. Uh, are teams going to evolve somehow? Are they going to remain the same? Uh, you know, what, what's the team going to look like in, in, you know, five or 10 years? We, given technological advance, given a societal change and so forth, chat, GPT, you name it. Right. There's all these things going on. But what I think fundamentally is it's going to be even more important, not less important. And people might say, well, that's you're teaching that. So there's an incentive for you to say that. But here's the way I think about this. Nothing is ever done by an individual. There's never been a, an individual who's won a championship, for example. Somebody says, well, a golfer or a skier or whatever. No, they have a team. They have a coach. They have uh, loved ones who do. It's always, there's, nuts, there's no such thing as an individual sport. It's a team sport. And so even when you look at innovation, and I know you've done a lot of work in innovation, innovation is a team sport. People can have the greatest ideas, but if they can't persuade anyone, it's not going anywhere. So I think to get anything done, at all in life, it comes back to a team. So this is critical to the success of corporations and as a whole in our life. I love that innovation is a team sport. So do you feel sometimes that um, people use a team as an out? In other words, they should be making a decision, taking responsibility, but they say, well, I have to get my team together to consider that we need some kind of consensus here, but really they should just be making the decision on the spot. Absolutely. I have clients who have a consensus culture and where, where how this really hurts them. They think it's inclusive, and it is, and there are times for that, but it slows down the organization. And there are certain things that people just need to make a decision. So, for example, I'll, I'll say to my clients certain things going in there, and I said, well, I'm going to bring up certain things, uh, you know, certain items. And there's going to be a tendency to want to debate it. You've got to make the call because leaders have to make decisions that sometimes are unpopular because later on it'll be proven to be correct. And we also, when we work with other people, we need to suspend our disbelief and try on different things. Like I'll often say, have you ever had a coach or teacher that asked you to do something that in the moment you thought was stupid, ridiculous, but then you reluctantly did it and you thought, oh my gosh, that that's brilliant. That's exactly what I need to do. So it's really about making the tough decisions. And I think that's really what's important to consider. We, we live in a culture today of misinformation, even disinformation. Uh, a lot of social media is just about confirmation bias. I want to listen to people who agree with me, nobody else. Uh, and so what will it take for people to uh, be comfortable being more honest with each other? And, and realize that that's really in their best interest to do that. So I think this is, is going to sound like it is not answering your question, but I want to kind of bring up a, a way to think about things. Culture is local, not 
companies. And so people's experience of honesty and whether they can speak the truth has a greater amount with who's around us than the big company culture or organizational culture. An example could be a company could say we advocate about you know, wanting hearing honesty. But if you work for somebody who creates that fear or people get defensive, that's going to shut it down. So actually what I consider is what's really important is the immediate environment. And I think culture is local, not big organizationally. And why that's really important to consider is that means no matter who we work with on the big scale, we can change the dynamic of any relationship if we focus on our relationship. And that's really important because people have a tendency to blame instead of accepting responsibility. And I believe you can change almost any relationship if you focus on yourself and the immediate surroundings. That's fascinating. It really is. You know, uh, it's interesting to me that you're dealing with very contemporary issues here with honesty and teams, but they're also ancient issues. In other words, Nothing got done, the Roman aqueducts or anything else. I was kidding about the wheel before, unless a team of people worked on it. And yeah. you know, thousands of years ago, they talked about Diogenes looking for an honest man. Uh, and so this is this has perpetuated itself through history. So um, uh, what do you think, Stephen? My, finally, my final question to you here is, uh, what do you think the chances are that um, the pendulum's going to swing around somewhat and um, people are going to realize the uh, the great uh, effectiveness when teams work together and the need for people to be not brutally honest, but at least, um, let's say, um, ethically honest with each other in order to help each other out. I think that's already happening. And maybe I'm just being optimistic. And, and when, But I think that is happening. And people recognize that. And my experience of uh, my clients and obviously I work with these people, so um, I have a predisposition to like thinking in, you know, let's put it this way. I have a predisposition to really seeing their point of view. And my experience is that great leaders do these types of things, and they always have done these things. It's the bad leaders that don't do these types of things, right? And so it's just when you see companies get in trouble because they didn't create that openness. And, you know, there's always the same kind of dynamic we got to consider. So I think people like to change and blame technology, and there are differences. But fundamentally, you know, great leadership is great leadership. Fundamentally, if you're making um, people feel safe, they'll speak the truth. And so, what we have to realize is there's a certain amount of evergreen to what we're talking about. And if we just do the basic and most important things like building teams, making people feel safe, and all the things that we've discussed about, you know, the communication business rhythm and many other things, but, you know, and it can make a huge difference. And it does make a huge difference. Stephen, you've written some books on this, obviously. You've done some other things. Where can people go to learn more about you and find out more about your work? If they go to our website, justbehonest.com, justbehonest.com, and if they uh, send us an email that they've listened and what they've done with it, I'll even send you the very first book I ever wrote for free called Just Be Honest, which deals with the critical distinction on how to speak the truth with anyone. That's great. Now, to send you the email, they do that on your site? Yes, they can go to the, our site or just say Stephen at StephenGaffney.com, uh, however they want to reach us. But they can go to our website and then just hit, hey, I listened to the podcast and I'd like the free book, Just Be Honest. And the website is Just Be Honest. Well, thanks for being honest with me today. I always appreciate talking to you. This was great. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. And thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. 
For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.